Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you homebrew? Coming up, we'll talk with the Monroe, Connecticut woman who co-owns a homebrew shop with her husband. We'll find out who's making beer these days and where do you begin? That's later. Now, if you love beer and you live in Connecticut, you already know the craft beer industry is hopping. Nearly 50 breweries have opened so far and more on the way. We'll talk with a couple of brewery owners about the business and their brews, and we want to hear from you. With so many choices out there, what are you looking for? And if you're thinking about opening a brewery, what challenges have you encountered? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, first, there's a lot of history surrounding beer, but we're going to focus in on New England. Joining me in studio is Lauren Clark, author of Crafty Bastards, Beer in New England from the Mayflower to Modern Day. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us about the the history of beer in New England. It goes way back. Yeah, it goes way back to, um, well, where my book starts is when the Pilgrims landed in 1620, um, in large part because they were running out of beer. And beer was was the better choice than than water because there wasn't a lot of it. Or tell us well, a little because, more about what was because on. The, you know the cities and towns where they came from in England um, did not have modern plumbing, uh, so common water sources were pretty polluted, uh, and it was a lot safer to drink beer, which is boiled in the process of if its production. So it's uh, it was safer than water. So then fast forward to uh, the early settlers and how uh, beer was something that the Puritans even uh, drank often. They did. They did. A lot of people think that the Puritans uh, did did not drink, but they certainly did. They were Englishmen and they drank their daily ration of beer just like like everybody else, Um, even the children. Uh, And and, uh, back in those days, uh, it was the woman of the household who, who brewed the beer for the family. Can you give us an idea of the type of beer they were drinking? They were drinking ale, um, you know, pretty much room temperature, uh, somewhat dark uh, ale, (laughs) Uh, unfiltered. It would have been a little cloudy. Uh, And they brewed ales to varying strengths. They had a a weaker table beer uh, for daily daily drinking and also for the children. Uh, And they had strong ales just like a lot of the brewers today brew. So brewing was a part of the character of the the settlers. And then when did things start to change? Was it prohibition where you didn't see a lot of people brewing? Certainly prohibition. Um, yeah, I mean, up up until till prohibition, uh, there was the the country was sort of awash in beer. Uh, saloons were on every corner, um, and the uh, the people who were leading the temperance movement, uh, which used to be more about uh, keeping uh, ardent spirits away from people, uh, they crossed over into wanting to ban fermented beverages, including beer, um, in large part because there was so much of it in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Now, you're not just an author. You're also a former brewer. Tell us what got you started uh, making beer. I started as a home brewer, like a lot of brewers do, uh, when I was in college. And uh, this was in the the first wave of of the craft beer renaissance. So um, that that kind of stuff was just coming out, and I was pretty fascinated by it. Uh, So yeah, I was was a home brewer, and then um, I decided to 
try to, to become a, a brewing intern, uh, and I did that in the late 90s. Um, my, my brewing career was brief. <laughs> it happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. We're going to say and hear the term craft beer often uh, during this show. What are we talking about exactly when we say craft beer? Um, you were talking about beer that is brewed with uh, quality ingredients, um, for the most part uh, malted barley as opposed to adjunct grains like rice and corn. Uh, and you're also talking about beer that is brewed um, on, a, on a relatively small scale. Uh, some craft brewer- breweries you know, are brewing in the millions of barrels per year, uh, but that's still a tiny amount compared to what the, the large uh, global brewing conglomerates brew every year. So it's, it's small batches, quality ingredients for the most part. The conglomerates like AB InBev. That's right. Uh, when we were talking about uh, how craft beer has become popular, so there were a few different things that happened along the way. So in the late 70s, let's talk about the, the law, the, the change uh, in terms of legalizing uh, craft beer. And then there's some interesting Connecticut roots, too. And we're talking about uh, the early brewers uh, that really uh, got ahead of the curve, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um the well, they're, they're one of the oldest homebrew clubs in the country uh, started in Connecticut in 1975. They were called the Underground Brewers, and they were started by a guy named Pat Baker, uh, who started the first one of the first homebrew supply shops in the nation uh, back in 1969 in Westport, Connecticut. Later moved to Westport, Massachusetts, but he and his partner Nancy Crosby uh, were instrumental in getting the law changed uh, so that homebrewing could become legal in 1979. Uh, and then they moved to, to Mass. I, I think I was reading in your book uh, that, that Jim Koch uh, of, uh, of Sam Adams uh, that supposedly started homebrew and he bought his ingredients from that shop? Yeah, Jim Cook. He, uh, so uh, according to Pat Baker, who owned, uh, who owned Crosby and Baker Supply, uh, Jim Cook told him that he bought his, his, first, uh, his first batch of homebrew ingredients from Crosby and Baker uh, when he was trying to reformulate his great-grandfather's um, uh, Vienna Vienna Lager recipe. <laughs> Today we're talking about craft beer on where we live. Uh, in studio with me is Lauren Clark, author of Crafty Bastards: A Beer in New- Beer in New England from Mayflower to Modern Day. Also a former brewer herself. If you want to join the conversation, if you if you're noticing the breweries popping up in in your neighborhood, or if you have a favorite, uh, the number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, also in studio with me is Connor Horrigan, founder of Half Full Brewery in Stamford, Connecticut. Connor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So we heard Lauren say she started out as a home brewer. Same with you? That's true. That's true. I uh, I kind of caught the bug uh, a number of years ago and was on a trip and, and had just kind of really started getting into beer and, and kind of came up and had this little bit of a epiphany while on this trip that I wanted to, to start a brewery and have it at kind of stand for something and come up with this kind of this name. Uh, but I realized I didn't know anything about brewing beer. And I figured I, if, I, if I wanted to do this, I didn't want to do it as like a business person starting a brewery. I wanted to do it as a brewer starting a brewery. So I got home. First thing I did is I called my uncle who had been home brewing since he was 14 years old uh, and, and headed down to Trumbull where he was and we brewed up our first batch. And, and how the, was it? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was all right. It was, uh, it was not uh, the perfect beer um, and it was nothing that, I, I don't think it was anything that anyone would buy now. It was not a double IPA, right, or anything like Britannomyces or anything like that. Um, I think we did like a nut brown 
ale, and you don't see too many of those on the shelves now. But I, you know, immediately, you know, kind of got the bug there and, and was like, this is really cool. We had done um, like a, an extract kit, and I was like, you know, I want to go all grain. We're going to be a brewer. Let's, let's be brewers. And so I started uh, uh, toying around with a couple of different websites and that kind of help you create recipes and started just kind of mixing and matching things that I thought I would like, and, and that's where it kind of took off. And you have uh, business partners as well. Um, I don't, I, I'm kind of the lead. We have various people that have invested. Um, you know, a lot of the people that have invested in the company are, are almost all of them are friends and family. Uh, and most of them, when I was kind of proposing the idea to them, were like, "Oh yeah, I always wanted to own a bar." And I'm like, "Well, there's a difference, a brewery, not not a bar." Um, but they've all kind of had a lot of fun. It, it's fun for them, and we we see this for them to put a sticker on the back of their car, right, with our logo, to be able to bring their friends to the brewery. It's kind of a fun community that that we've created, even within the people that have partnered with us on it as investors. Uh, we were talking about a resurgence in uh, people interested in opening breweries. Uh, Lauren, I was curious why the western side of the country seemed to have, uh, were kind of ahead of the game in terms of uh, the type of breweries that were opening up, and there just seemed to be a lot more versus this side of the country. Yeah, I mean, in the very earliest days of, of, of craft brewing, it was really the West Coast that that pioneered the whole thing. Um, I, you know, the West Coast is famous for the pioneering spirit, right? <laughs> so um, they're often ahead of the curve in, in national trends, uh, and that was the case with craft beer. Uh, but it really didn't take long for um, the other coast to get in on the game. Um, you know, people like Jim Cook of Boston Beer Company and David Geary of, of Geary's in Portland, Maine, which started in 1986. Um, the Commonwealth Brewing Company, which was the first brew pub in New England, uh, opened in 1986. Um, so New Englanders uh, were often are often sort of uh, undersung players in the history of craft beer. Um, they started out, you know, pretty early on, but um, they didn't make the names for themselves early on that, that some of the West Coast people did. We were talking about pioneers uh, here in Connecticut, Phil Murkowski from uh, Two Roads. Can we talk a little bit about his history? Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the, uh, the Brewers Club, um, but I'm just curious more about when we look at Two Roads now and how it's been able to expand. Yeah, I mean, um, he uh, Phil started out uh, in the underground brewers. He was uh, one of the early, very talented home brewers that that, that whole circle of people knew very well. Um, he started uh, two roads. Um, uh, what is it, six six years or so <laughs> ago now? Um, and I talked to him for my book. Uh, very well respected brewer, uh, in, you know, on, even nationally. And uh, yeah, I mean, two roads uh, is a unique facility because it really started uh, to help other craft brewers um, be able to brew and package their beer on a really consistent and, and um, technologically sophisticated uh, basis. Uh, and so in addition to the Two Roads label, um, there are other craft beers being brewed there, and it, and it really is a, a state-of-the-art, lovely <laughs> brewery, and they're, they're doing some great stuff. That's interesting, the idea of collaboration. Uh, when you look at the business world, you think of uh, there being a lot of competition when you're making a certain product. I'm curious, Connor, what you've seen, uh, now that you've been doing this for a few years now, of how uh, other breweries breweries are helping each other. Yeah, we, um, you know, from the very get-go, uh, we've been helped by other people uh, in the community. Uh, when I got started, right after I started homebrewing, I went and worked in New England Brewing, um, down in Woodbridge, and, and Rob Leonard there has been just kind of great to, to me. He, he brought me in, allowed me to intern. I went back after I developed the business plan for Half Full, and he helped me uh, create the brewing system 
Um, and so he's been a guy that I've gone to over the years and, and asked for help or, or question. if I had a question on something, I'd pick up the phone and call him, and he's been great. And even you mentioned Two Roads. I remember one time uh, we ran out of rings for our cans, and I, you know, we called up one of the production managers there. And we're like, hey, we don't have any rings. Do you have any? He's like, yeah, come on down, grab them. So there's always been this really great kind of uh, community um, in, in Connecticut that, that started with just a couple of breweries and now is beginning to expand. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm going to be doing over the next uh, couple of weeks is actually visiting a lot of the brewers that we haven't, uh, that we don't have any relationship with currently, uh, because there's things that are going on even in different uh, micro areas of the state that are that are different from what we're doing down where we are. And so there's things that we can learn. Uh, and then it's also fun, right? When you start to collaborate, we have a whole collaboration project called the Community Source Ales Project, where we get together with other artisans and we combine on a beer. And we're now beginning to talk to other brewers about doing that. And what's fun about it is. You, they have their kind of crowd that, that comes and visits them. We have ours. And it'd be fun to kind of combine them and, like, kind of get into each other's spaces um, and kind of collide with them in a good way um, and, and see what kind of comes out of it. Christian's calling from East Haven. Christian, you're on the show. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we've kind of been doing similar things at Overshores. Um, you know, we, we've taken on a little bit of what's called contract work where – you know, we'll do slightly larger batches of beer for guys that, you know, they've maybe started with a three-barrel system or a seven-barrel system, and, you know, they'll have a beer that sort of takes off, and they just can't keep up with their small system. And so what we can do is kind of bridge the gap between, you know, someone on a three-barrel system and, you know, what people generally think of as a, a, a contract brewery like Two Roads, where, you know, they're doing 100-barrel, 200-barrel batches. You know, the leap uh, is enormous. So, you know, what we can do is allow people to come in and do 15-barrel, 30-barrel, 45-barrel batches at our place um, and also give them the opportunity to, to do can releases. Um, and it, it really it really serves the Connecticut community because it helps consumers get access to things that are otherwise really hard to find. You know, a lot of these small guys, they only sell out the door or they're only in a couple stores uh, near their place. Um and so it, you know, it sort of bridges the gap as a community because, you know, we really feel that, you know, working together, we can kind of create a Connecticut scene uh, with, with great products um, that sort of helps everybody. Because if people are engaged in craft beer in general, then we all kind of benefit from that. Now, Christian, uh, I mentioned uh, you're calling from East Haven. So you're the owner of Overshore's Brewery. How long have you been open? So we've been open about three and a half years. Um, we'll have our fourth anniversary in May. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with us are some local brewers. As we talk about the craft beer industry, I wanted to turn uh, to another guest before we head to break. Uh, Sheila Mullen is founder and managing owner of Fat Orange Cat Brew Company in East Hampton, Connecticut. Sheila, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Oh, and I understand that you have a, a farm brewery. Tell us about that. We do. Well, but this we opened prior to the state coming up with the um, passing the farm bill law. So we applied through our town to have a farm brewery, which means we source, grow or source, we're sourcing at least 20% of our product from Connecticut. Now, the, um, one of the interesting things when I was listening to Christian talk about a contract brewery, that's something that you yes, do. Tell us about is. that. Well, we're tiny. He was talking about three barrel being tiny. We're one barrel. Um, so if you come on Saturdays, we're only open on Saturdays, you'll get different beers every week because we're just rotating one barrel batches. But we're contract brewing 15 and 30 barrel batches at Shabin and Walkett. And so we go down there 
our brewers were there the past two days. And so we're just starting to distribute to restaurants and bars that way. So we're staying tiny. You can bring your kids, your dogs, have different beer every Saturday, but then we're also getting out there. We're going to talk more about the business side of the industry. Uh, if you have a favorite a craft brew that you want to talk about or maybe you're thinking about uh, starting to home brew, you can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. And uh, when we get back from the break, we'll hear more from our brewers. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you a craft beer fan? Some names you may be familiar with in Connecticut include Two Roads in Stratford, Thomas Hooker Brewing Company in Bloomfield. But there are many, many more breweries all over Connecticut, nearly 50 so far. That number is expected to grow. Now, what's led to the surge in new breweries in Connecticut? We have some local brewers here. In studio with us, Connor Horgan, founder of Half Full Brewery in Stamford, Connecticut. Sheila Mullen, founder, co-founder and managing owner of Fat Orange Cat Brew Company in East Hampton, Connecticut. And and author Lauren Clark is here, too, author of Crafty Bastards, Beer in New England from the Mayflower to Modern Day. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, Sheila, you were talking about uh, your farm brewery, but I'm curious, you know, you and your husband, why did you start this? What what made you uh, take this chance? Um, he just, my husband, Mike, started brewing almost every weekend and just became obsessed with brewing. And then the competitions for home brewers, there's a lot of competition or competitions and you can go meet other home brewers and he was doing really well and winning these things and then we went up to Brattleboro for a bigger one for New England Pro-Am and he won a couple different categories there and we kind of looked at each other like wow you could really do this I was like well you're really good at this you have a natural knack for this and so then we already had our barn we said let's convert the barn and that just sounds very simple. It took a year and a half to go through the process. Um, but that's how it all took off. A year and a half and money. How do you go forward with a business plan? Where do you turn to get advice on, on how to do it? I, we don't have any investors. We used our own money, home equity line of credit. Um, we're a tiny operation. And um, we just dumped everything, heart and soul, and our cash into this business. <laughs> And um, it's going really well, surprisingly well. We've been open just over a year. Mm. Connor, tell, talk, walk me through. Um, you had worked in, in New York City before uh, uh, starting uh, Half Full Brewery in Stanford. Um, in terms of, of the business side of things, uh, when people are listening now who might be interested in, in thinking about this, like where, where do they turn? What, what are some, what's some advice you can give them? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to kind of choose your, your model, right? Um, when I hear about like a farm brewery, like I, I just drool because I, I think of how cool that is and like the great location. And it's just like, I, I, I imagine this room where you go and sit and drink unbelievable beer for hours and hours. We chose a different model, which was more of this kind of uh, one, it was location, right? We were like, we want to be in, the, in a city. Um, right, uh, in a really densely populated area. And then we also wanted to focus on distribution. So, you know, part of like, for instance, Two Roads Business is selling beer, right? It's, it, sorry, it's contracting beer for people, but it's also brewing their own, putting it out into the market. And so we had made a decision early on, we wanted to get into distribution and be able to bring this beer as far and wide as we could, right? Because we, we kind of believed in this idea of being half full. And it was a message that we thought, you know, could, could travel with beer. 
Um, so, yeah, I think the first thing is to decide, like, do you want to go and, and brew these massive batches and try and get into lots of different markets, or do you want to focus more uh, on bringing someone to you to drink on site? And we've, so we started with one idea, which was let's go into distribution, and we've landed kind of in between those where we, we have distribution um, within basically two hours of us, but actually not New York City, which is very close to us. Uh, but we also have a tasting room where we bring uh, people in four days a week to, to try all these different beers that we're, that we're doing. Lauren, how does Connecticut compare uh, when you uh, rate us next to Vermont or Massachusetts? Um, it's doing great. I mean, it, it, the the proliferation of, of craft breweries in Connecticut is is a little more recent um, than in some of the other New England states. Um, but I think they've really made up for for lost time. <laughs> I mean, I think you said there were, there were fifty uh, breweries Almost in Connecticut 50. now. Um, I mean, my book came out three years ago, and I had counted back then only only <laughs> two hundred breweries in all of New England. Uh, and so the fact that there are 50 in Connecticut now uh, means that 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 number of breweries in New England is probably way up around you know maybe 300 or more or more now. So things are happening fast, and and I know a lot of the Connecticut breweries are, you know, really making some good stuff. When it comes to opening a brewery. Uh I'm just curious about the laws in Connecticut. Are they, uh, in terms of regulating breweries, is it something easy to navigate? Um, not easy. I think accessible, but it's like I used to be a teacher and I wrote grants and it's like one big grant writing year and a half as far as going through the federal and then the state. And in our situation, we had to do a regulation zone change to allow for this on our property and a special permit. So there are veils and layers, but I don't think it's hard. I just think it's arduous and there's so much minutia involved that you just have to, you have to really want it badly (laughs) to commit that much time to this process. You mentioned there's a a new law that allows uh, local beers to be sold on farms that just started. Yeah, and I am not really um, that well informed about the whole bill other than it's similar to what we had through our town for special permit and Kent Falls to operate. We both have manufacturer permits, but now you can apply for a farm brewer permit Mm -hmm. and you have some other benefits, um, but you are committed to, I know the biggest thing, certain percentages of Connecticut grown. So when uh, we're talking about all of these breweries opening up, that's a good thing, but I'm curious, how do you get on shelves in uh, package stores? How do you get distribu- uh, distributors interested in carrying uh, what you have, uh, Connor? Yeah, it's kind of, um, there's multiple steps in the process, right? Because we actually, because we don't self-distribute, um, we actually have to find distributors to give us access to retailers because we can't just walk into any store and say, hey, do you want to try my beer? Okay, you like it, put it on your shelf. So for us, it starts with finding a good distribution partner. Uh, and we were lucky early on. Uh, our first distribution partner ends up, it turns out that he's one of my really good friends. I didn't know it at the time, but he went to uh, preschool with my wife. There was this whole like backstory that we all of a sudden discovered. And, you know, my first conversation, this was back in 2011 with him, was like, hey, I want to start this brewery and we want to distribute. Like, would you be interested? And he's like, yeah, um, you know, craft beer is not too popular just yet here in Connecticut. We're a little bit behind behind, uh, 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 you know, the pace and uh, of everyone else. So you're gonna have to distribute yourself. And then I kept talking to him. He's like, all right, well, we you decide you really want to get in distribution, then maybe we'll do it. And then finally, I kind of warmed down after a long time. And he's like, okay, we'll distribute your beer. So it's, it's finding a distributor. And so that was 
uh, we were kind of lucky that we knew someone in it. Since we've gone and expanded into other markets, it's really finding a distributor that kind of matches what you need, who likes your story, likes your product, and it's it's you can really tell within the first ten seconds of walking into the room whether or not you're going to get along. And so it's really important that you find the right partner because once you get in, you're you're in. Right? It's very tough to break a distribution contract with someone. So it, it's worth for people that are looking to kind of get into the distribution model like we did to really do your homework when you're going to find find a partner. You mentioned your tasting room. Is that the key where people come, they taste your beer, they like it, they go to their local package store and say, hey, can I? Can you get this line on, on the shelf for me to buy? Yeah, you know, I think it's like one of probably 10 things, right? We have people that go out and they, they participate in brew fests. Um, they do samplings at liquor stores. We do events out at, at bars. We do um, lots of different, there's lots of different ways that we kind of gain exposure to the customer. And so the more that we can do that, the better. And one of the things that, you know, we want to start working on is, you know, teaming up with other local breweries and saying, hey, rather than us just half full of doing a promo at a bar, what if you brought three beers, we brought three beers, and someone else in Connecticut, and we, we do like more of a joint Connecticut tap takeover to kind of get the eyes on multiple breweries and get multiple fan bases out. So it's, um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Taste room is obviously instrumental, but not everyone is willing to, to endure the 95 traffic to come to our taste room. So we got to rely on other sources, too. And Sheila, you're just getting into distribution. Yes, just about two months ago. We are self-distributing. Again, we're tiny. We're talking about a different scale. Um, so we have a wonderful person, Carla. Big shout out to her. We hired a part-time person. She not only manages distribution, but she physically distributes. We bought a little um, Sprinter van and... People have been just contacting us and wanting our beer, and so we're just starting out slowly. But we've we're pretty much capping it right now. It's about thirty-five restaurants and something like fifteen package stores, um, and it's a whole new world getting out there. But it's going great, and um, the more we contract brew, that's the beer that we're distributing. So we kind of had have these two avenues going: those beers out and about, and then five to seven different small batch every Saturday. This is where we live today. We're talking about craft beer here in Connecticut. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Elliot's calling from Manchester. Elliot, you're on the show. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What's your question or comment? Well, I spent a little bit of time in the business. I ran a couple of different package stores. I worked for a wine distributor for a little while. Um, when I was still in the business six, seven years ago, we would have guys come in kind of on the cusp of craft beer in New England, and they'd be checking the dates on the cans and the dates on the six packs. And we always thought as employees, oh, God, it's that guy again checking the dates. But now as a consumer, I'm out of the business, and I continue to see that as a problem. You know, these guys that are brewing these brewery owners, do you guys have this conversation with distributors and package store owners? I mean, I go into a package store and I'm always looking to make sure that I'm not getting a six-month-old or an eight-month-old beer. Um, What do you guys feel about this sort of problem that Mm -hmm. continues to happen? Good question, Elliot. I'll go to Connor Horrigan from Half Full Brewery in Stanford. Yeah, we um, it was probably about two years ago when this really got on our radar. We were uh, thinking about brewing a, a pale ale, and so we we're like, you know, what? part of our research is let's go buy a number of pale ales from like people that we really respect, uh, and we'll try them out, and we'll try and like kind of create this based on different flavors and and uh, looks of of these beers. And we got six beer, and I won't name them. They, they were all incredible pale ales, and we started tasting. Them, we're like, wow, that is way off. Like, and then all of a sudden we started looking at the dates, and we're like, we were realizing. Almost every single one of those beers, which had come from a really good retail store, were seriously out of code. 
And we're like, wow, this can be a real problem because what you're tasting right in a tap room, which is super fresh, is going to be totally different if it's sitting in the sun somewhere, right, where people can't see it for, for nine months. So we have like an active program, right? And, and a lot of, you know, you see this with um, Sam Adams, for instance, they have a very active program about how they deal with out-of-code beer. Um, where we go in, we check dates, right? If something's out-of-code, right, we'll, we'll buy it off the shelf. Uh, but it's, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we actually go into a new distribution contract, where we actually write those terms into the contract, where we will deliver beer with a certain amount of shelf life left on it, and if the, the, the distributor sees beer past that, that they will take it off the shelf. So it, in our early days, we didn't really talk much about it, and now we write it into everything. So it's, it's a problem, and it's going to be more and more of a problem as, as more and more breweries come out and more and more beers are coming out um, that people, you know, you could put a great beer on the shelf, but if no one's ever heard of you, they're not going to pick it up, and all of a sudden this unbelievable double IPA is going to go to waste. So it's, um, it's going to continue to be a problem, and it's kind of on everyone, the distributor, the retailer, even the consumer to manage it, right, for the consumer to say, hey, do you know you have kind of old stuff on your shelf. So team effort uh, for tackling that problem. I was curious because we're talking about uh, you know trying to get uh, craft beer uh, made locally on the shelves. When we look at some of these uh, large companies, uh, Lauren, um, like AB InBev, who've bought some of these uh, craft brews that have become popular, uh, it's a Goose Island uh, now owned by AB InBev, uh, Lagunitas by Heineken. How does that impact uh, these smaller brewers that are trying to get into to stores? If you've got the big the big guys buying up smaller uh, breweries and they're commanding that shelf space? Um, it's been an issue from day one. <laughs> um, you know, in the early days of craft brewing, uh, the, the bigger companies, you know, really did have to- almost total control over distribution. So it took a long, it was a long fight uh, through the 90s for the craft brewers to, to even get distribution, to get even the time of day <laughs> from distributors. Um, it's distributors now, most distributors have a craft beer portfolio. They, they want to distribute craft beers. Uh, but yeah, there's always been competition from the bigger companies buying some of the smaller companies um, and having a lot of control o- over distribution. Um, um, but really, I mean, craft brewers have made uh, big inroads. And I mean, you know, one of the, the primary sort of problems you hear about these days is just there's not enough shelf space for all the, the beers. I mean, every brewery now is sort of meeting this insatiable demand for, you know, a different kind of beer every week or every month. Uh, and so the individual brewers' portfolios are growing and growing. And, you know, just to, to cut through the noise of all the different labels that are out there uh, and to get the, uh, you know, shelf on the space, it's, um, it's, it's more of a problem kind of like on, on the end user, uh, mm. <laughs> you know, part of it. Uh, Lauren Clark is author of Crafty Bastards Beer in New England from the Mayflower to Modern Day. Also with us, Connor Horgan, founder of Half Full Brewery in Stamford, Connecticut, and Sheila Mullen, co-founder and managing owner of Fat Orange Cat Brew Company in East Hampton, Connecticut. Let's talk about some of uh, how do you make your your beer stand out? Uh, Sheila, tell me about some of the the beer that uh, your husband makes that you're selling uh, at your farm brewery. Uh, How do you make what you're make it stand out to others that they want to try it because there's so many choices. I, I just think from the beginning, the um, just going for different things like the Jalapeno Jack is one of the first beers that Mike started winning and it was just so odd. It's a jalapeno cream ale and so, and it's not spicy because we cut all the ribs and seeds out. And so I think we really got noticed. We always have that beer. That's the one beer, it's a flagship always have that beer. So right now, 
we're getting known for New England style IPAs, but we still always have that that cream ale. And the tastes change so rapidly. And so Mike and we have another full-time, two full-time brewers now, my husband, Mike Kluznick and Scott Cross, they are constantly experimenting. One advantage of one batch brewing is you can experiment a lot more because if you're dumping a beer, you know, dumping 15 barrels versus one barrel. Um, so they do a lot of experimenting and try to have kind of across the board up. This weekend we have like a Belgian, a stout, a whole bunch of IPAs, a cream ale. I think craft beer is so popular because people are realizing it's not just a can of beer. I like beer. I don't like beer. There's so many nuances to beer that everyone's discovering they like beer. A lot of people who always thought they didn't. Connor, tell us what uh, you're, you guys are making. Yeah, well, like I mentioned before, we do this uh, community store sales project, right, which is all, you know, to, to echo what Sheila said here, is all about kind of innovation, trying new things and, and, and getting outside the box. Um, we also, we just started, it's uh, releasing November 22nd, the Wednesday of Thanksgiving, this uh, series called Without Rhyme or Reason. Uh, we tend to overthink things at half full, and this is one of the things that's going to be kind of, uh, you know, the, the antithesis of that, which is, hey, let's brew different beers that just sound really interesting and go for it. So we have like, a, I think it's a rice spiked sports beer that's going to have toasted marshmallow in it. We have a New England IPA coming out on the 22nd. Um, we've got, you know, it, basically if there's something you can think of, we want to try and brew it in small batch to kind of get people interested. Um, so we kind of have that approach, but we also, you know, even getting away from the product is, how do you develop the community around you and get them interested, right? There's a lot of people that don't even know they love craft beer yet, right? How do you get to them, get them in your doors? And so we think a lot about how do we build a community and, and, and give them reasons to kind of stop by. Sometimes it's beer. Sometimes it's, it's having a private event or a cool event. Um, but, you know, whatever we can do to kind of build that community, that's, that's another kind of angle that really, really works for us. Are there batches you've made that really haven't worked out, the flavor combination? Uh, not in a long time. <laughs> um, um, many years ago, yes. Uh, but no, the, now, you know, when we do it, we do a lot of, of analysis before. And, and Tom Price, who's our, our brewmaster who came to us from Brooklyn Brewery, um, is really kind of a brilliant guy um, who – you know, I, I'm one of the types who's like, hey, I want it now. I'm type A. Like, hey, why don't we do this beer? Can we try this in two weeks? And he's like, hmm, let me think about that. Right? And then he goes. He does his research. He makes me wait and wait and wait. And then he's like, Here, here's what I'm thinking we're going to do. Right? And it's well thought out. And so we do a lot more kind of upfront research before we, we dive into something. Um, so even though without rhyme or reason sounds like it's this kind of loosey-goosey thing, we are thinking about how do we make this beer amazing and not something where you're like, hmm, this would be better if we just put this in food instead. Uh, we've talked about small batches. Uh, that seems to be a, a strategy that a lot of places are trying. I'm thinking about Treehouse Brewing in, in Massachusetts where you know I hear from friends that you have to go on a certain day and there's a limit on how much you can buy. And that creates demand, Lauren? Yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> there's there's a lot of, um, I guess, quote unquote, uh, cult beers out there these days. <laughs> um, I mean, in New England, it kind of started with, uh, you know, Hill Farmstead's beers and uh, Hetty Topper from The Alchemist in Vermont. Um, but but the but the trend has spread <laughs> throughout New England and, and across the country. And certainly Treehouse um, has a rabid following. I, I was there actually uh, in the spring um, on, uh, I think it was a Thursday afternoon. And 
and they hadn't even opened yet, and there was already a line of about 150 people out their door uh, waiting to get their, their growler or their four-pack of cans. Um, so, yeah, there's there's definitely a, um, a lot of the contemporary breweries, um, you know, over the past 10 years or so um, are have purposefully kept themselves very small and very local, um, you know, partly to because they, they want to just be small and local and serve their only their communities, um, but they discover very quickly that uh, they create this 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 demand, and um, you know there's there's kind of a lot of um, you know trading in the parking lot of, of special edition beers and things like that, and even you know selling beer on eBay and, and crazy things like that. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting trend. Oh, I was curious also uh, when we're thinking about uh, breweries, like when is the time to take that next step to expand? Uh, I'm thinking about in my town of Suffield, uh, Broadbrook uh, Brewing is building a whole new uh, facility. Um, it, it's tricky to f- try to figure out well, does it make sense financially? I'm just curious, like some of the thought process that, that you go through, uh, Connor and Sheila. I'll start with you, Connor. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you want to reach saturation point in, in your local market, right? Everyone says that's what you need to do before you expand. Um, and so we, we try and kind of balance it. We say, hey, you know, we want to go deep and, and, and we could go way deeper still in, in our local markets. But we also want to kind of bring this out to other other areas, right? And so, you know, for us, it's it's having a reason to expand, right? A reason to expand could be, hey, you know, we, we brew a certain amount of beer, but now we want to get into new styles. In order to do new styles, I need more fermenters. And it's just a matter of, of capacity being an issue. Um, so that could be a reason. Um, you know, and like right now, we're looking at, we're doing a, a project and doing a lot of work on it, which would be an expansion of not just the beer concept, but actually of this kind of optimistic concept that we have, right? And how we bring people to in and get them to kind of think about new ideas and have it all be around beer. So, you know, if it's, if it's you know, one, it's a capacity issue, or two, it's an innovation issue, like, as long as there's, there's a reason for it, it makes sense. Don't just do it because your investors are like, hey, this is what we're supposed to do. Sheila Mullen? Um, well, we have to expand. We have to move because we're in a residential. It's rural residential. But we are really busting out of our space. There's too much traffic. We, we hire a police officer um, for the road every Saturday. Um, So we have to accelerate our expansion because it's just too much for that area. But the town is being great. Um, So Mike and I will not sacrifice the farm brewery or having, we're looking at a big wooded property right now. I don't want to be too excited about it because it's not a completely done deal. But we're really trying to purchase a large wooded property and build a big timber frame but not lose, everyone keeps saying when they come, please don't lose this vibe. And so we, we are not going to lose that vibe. That's why it's taking so long to find the right place where you can have all different seating areas. I'm not sure if I'll bring my goats to the new place because it, we would need a vehicle for that. But um, we have goats and chickens at our place. But still, finding the right place. So we're not rushing it, but we are really, we're in a position where we have to move. So probably a year from now, I'm hoping, and we'll still keep our facility for small functions. Now, coming up, we're going to talk to a, a co-owner of a home brew shop if you're interested in learning how to start uh, making a beer. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to ask about the question of trying to use more local ingredients. Uh, I understand when you're home brewing, you go to shops, a lot of the, the product comes from the Pacific Northwest. Can both of you uh, walk us through efforts in Connecticut to uh, get more locally grown uh, ingredients in your beers, Sheila? Yeah, I can speak about 
the hops a little bit. I'm, there's DeFrancesco Farm. Alex DeFrancesco has really spearheaded this and is the president of the Connecticut Hop Growers Association. And he recently got a pelletizing machine because you really want your hops pelletized. Um, it's better for your system. And so it's sort of taking off in a big way. More and more people are growing hops. I've talked to several different hop farmers. Um, when they're ready to go, we're ready to go with them. And yes, it's going to cost a little bit more, but it's part of that commitment um, and to the farm brewery is supporting Connecticut agriculture. And I think there's a new malt house. Do you know this new malt house? There's somebody starting the first malt house in the state. And so that's just starting. We get all our peppers from DeFrancesco Farm. We get all our syrup from Rick Sugar Shack down the road. Um, just every effort to do local, but it's going to explode because a lot of people are just starting to grow hops and they're they should be ready in a year or two to really take off. I want to fit in a call before we head to break. Andy's calling from Southington. Andy, you're on the show. Hi, great. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, we have two great new breweries in Southington, one called Kinsman Brewing, the other Witch Doctor Brewing. They're, they're nice facilities. They took over old factories, really neat, very social. I was curious uh, about laws and allowing kids in the breweries. I, I initially found it very strange. I mean, I love it because it's a very social environment. I was just curious uh, how that evolved and what the rules are. Thank you. Go ahead, Connor. Do you know? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Um, we do have uh, a, a lawyer on staff who works pro bono, my mother, which is a, a blessing. <laughs> um, but we, um, I, I think we had read it at one point, as long as they're not uh, behind the bar or within a certain distance, that it's a, a okay. Um, so we, we probably should get a better read on that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, there's a standard in the state that as long as you're a certain distance from the bar, you're okay. And so as long as your bar's not, you know, within three feet of your door, you probably should be okay. Sheila Mullen from uh, Fat Orange Cat Brew Company. Yeah, we, a lot of kids have a lot of dogs and kids, and they just can't be behind the bar. And they're usually outside running around. Um, we're set back from the road so the parents can do their tastings. And we don't sell a glass of beer, just the tastings. So it's a pretty mellow scene. Um, so people bring their kids. They are allowed there not behind the bar, except for my nephew when he comes for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Craft beer, there are a lot of choices to choose from here in Connecticut. But what if you want to brew your own? Where do you start? We'll hear from Monroe businesswoman who owns a homebrew shop with her husband. We'll take your questions too, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Many craft breweries open after their owners experimented with home brewing. When my husband and I moved to Connecticut 11 years ago, he started home brewing in our third floor apartment in West Hartford. It took me a while to get used to that smell. It's not so bad now. Then we moved to Middletown, and his home brewing took up half of our finished basement. Now, do you home brew? Are you thinking about starting? Joining our conversation now is Tess Samatulski, co-owner of Maltose Express Home Brewing and Winemaking Supplies. And next door is Voracious Brewery in Monroe which she also owns. Tess, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, how did you and your husband get into home brewing? Well, my husband used to be an engineer. He basically is a rocket scientist, and he always wanted a homebrew since he tasted one of his friend's homebrews. And I was a caterer at the time, and I would always cook with high-end beers. So he decided to homebrew, and I decided to use his beers in my catering. And then he had a difficult time getting supplies. He would do mail order, and they would not always have 
what he wanted or the boxes would come damaged. So he and another engineer friend decided to just do it out of the house as a mail order and, you know, just like a pickup place. And it got so big that we were forced to rent one room on Route 25 in a building. And eventually we took over the whole building. And then we got too big. We moved up the street on the Newtown border. And then now we are in the facility. This is our third facility um, on Route 25 in Monroe. So are you see, how are you seeing the customers changing over the years? Um, it used to be that the old-timers would come in and brew because it was, you know, cheaper to, to brew. But now it's more of a craft, and we have a lot of younger people uh, brewing, homebrewing. And amazingly, we had a, a lot of women homebrewing, which makes me very happy. Because if you think about it, women were the first brewers, you know, in history. So to it coming back there now, it's, it's really exciting. And it's a way of expressing yourself because there's so many different ingredients out there that you can put a spin on any recipe and make it your own. Uh, Lauren Clark is in the studio with us, author of Crafty Bastards, Beer in New England from the Mayflower to Modern Day. And Tess Lauren used to brew as well. Uh, when you have women coming into the store, uh, what are the questions they have? What has uh, ignited their interest? Well, I think just the, the whole craft brew industry women are really getting into craft beer now, which is amazing. So women are cooks, and women want to, you know, they see their husbands brewing, and maybe they just love beer and they want to brew their own. So when they come in, um, we really try to foster them and help them, and it's always a great experience for them. We do offer free how-to-homebrew classes. In fact, there's one coming up on December 9th. It's on a Saturday morning, and what we do is we invite anybody that wants to learn about home brewing, or even think if it might be a hobby for you to come to the class. We brew an extract batch during class. We second stage a beer. We also pass around hops and grain and yeast and talk about all the different components of beer. We also touch on water treatment and show them how easy it is just to brew your own beer because in two hours we brewed a beer, we second staged beer, we talked about all the ingredients of beer, and of course, you know, you taste beer throughout the whole class. Mm. Uh, Lauren, I'm curious, when you started, was it more of a boys club? Uh, yeah, it was, actually. Uh, um, even though I was actually inspired to homebrew um, by a couple of women that I knew, uh, it was, it was yeah, mostly men, um, you know, not only homebrewing, but, but brewing professionally. Um, and that's changing a lot. Uh, it's still, I mean, it's still a, a male-dominated industry. Um, but, you know, you, you just see more and more women um, entrepreneurs and, and homebrewers on, you know, on every level of the, of the craft beer world. Uh, Tess, you said that it's it's easy. Well, tell us a little bit where people start. So they go into your store, do they pick up certain packs, uh, sure. certain recipes so, for a stout or a lager? Yeah, so what we, we do is we urge people to brew an ale for their first one because lagers take a lot longer. So this way they can taste their beer in three to four weeks. So when they come in, we have um, an equipment kit that we put together ourselves. It's a primary fermenter, a glass carboy, and it has everything that you would need to brew your own beer. Then we have, uh, we've written two books, Clone Brews and Beer Captured. So usually they start out with an extract specialty grain kit from that, and it comes with instructions, and we, you know, actually open up the kit and, you know, walk them through it. Every kit has a liquid yeast, which is, really makes a big difference, I think, in home brewing today than maybe 15 or 20 years ago. So we go through everything with them. We, you know, just tell them to sanitize everything, and we just tell them it's easy because if you can boil water, basically you can, you can make beer. <laughs> 
I guess I got to try it. What, am I, what have I been waiting for? Uh, and you, Tess, you also own Voracious Brewery next door. How have you seen uh, the landscape change in terms of we're, we're talking about how nearly 50 breweries are now open here in Connecticut? Um, fairly easy to do? Open up a brewery? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, not at mm-hmm. all. It, um, it takes a lot of work, and you get a lot of setbacks. And in Monroe, the town really quite didn't know what to do with us, so we went through planning and zoning many, many times. It, it took a long time to do. We, um, we began buying the equipment in March of 2013, and until our approvals came in, we began brewing the brewery in December of 2014. So it it was a long time just to even get the approvals and everything like that. So um, it w- wasn't easy. Before we uh, head out of the show, I wanted to go back to Lauren Clark. Uh, we keep talking about the, the number of breweries opening. Are we reaching a bubble here in Connecticut or still room? <laughs> I think there's probably st- still a lot of room in, in Connecticut. Um, Massachusetts, maybe not so much. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's 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 the question that, that comes up all the time. Are we in a bubble? Um, um, I mean, I, I always kind of give two answers. Yes, uh, we are. <laughs> uh, growth in craft beer has actually dropped off in the last uh, couple of years from the double digits. I think we're into the single digit growth. We're still in growth, but it's, it's slowed down. Um, I talked about shelf space earlier. There's just not enough shelf space for all the beers that are out there. Um, but at the same time, uh, you have uh, you have you have the demand. The demand is still there for craft beers, uh, new craft beers. And also, uh, basically, any town without a craft brewery is an opportunity for a craft brewer. Uh, it's, you know, it's really um, the gist of, of, of my book is basically, you know, for centuries and centuries, brewing locally was human nature. That's that's what brewing was. Um, the industrial era where we had national breweries was really just a blip in history. Uh, we're now back to people brewing for their local communities and their neighbors. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's. Uh, I, I think it's. It's still going to be. There's still going to be some growth, but it might just be a little bit slower. I want to thank Lauren Clark again, author of Crafty Bastards: Beer in New England from the Mayflower to Modern Day. Thank you, Lauren, for your time. Thank you very much. Also, Connor Horgan, founder of Half Full Brewery in Stamford, Connecticut. Thank you, Connor. Thank you. And Sheila Mullen, founder and, co- and managing owner of Fat Orange Cat Brew Company in East Hampton, Connecticut. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you, Lucy. I understand that the trend now uh, beyond IPAs is sour beers. I'm not sure if I'm on that wagon yet. But we want to thank you all for coming in today. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Boscoff. Special thanks to Jason Neely. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Executive producer, Katie Talarski. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.